So we're going to continue in Romans, and um, I'm going to preach today and ask you to turn today to Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. So Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Where we read these words of Paul. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for this book of Romans that's been given to us, your people. We want to thank you for the truths that it teaches, for the deep truths that you want us to understand and grasp. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us hearts and minds that seek after you, that you may speak to us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many mysteries in life, many mysteries, and here's one that, that was encountered by one man and his son. Now this man was raised in the, the back hills of West Virginia, and right out in the sticks where he lived, he had never in his life seen a big city, and he knew nothing at that time of the modern inventions like indoor plumbing and, and electricity, and he married a girl from exactly the same background, and they spent all their married years in those backwoods that they loved so dearly. They had one son who inventively, creatively, they named Junior. Around the time Junior reached his 16th birthday, his dad began to realise that it wouldn't be many more years before their son would probably strike out on his own. And it had troubled him that his, his boy could reach manhood and wind up maybe getting a job in the city, but not prepared really to face the real world. So he decided to do something about it. And he and his wife started saving for a trip they would take to the city. And about three years later, it took them that long, the big day arrived. And they tossed all their belongings in the back of their their old pickup truck and started the long journey beginning along winding country roads to the city. Their plan was to spend several days at a swanky hotel that they'd heard of and to take in all the sights. But as they approached the outskirts of this big metropolis, well, Papa began to get a little bit jumpy and nervous. So Mama, he said, when we pull up at the hotel, you stay in the truck while Junior and I go in and look around. If everything is okay, we'll come back and get you. So Mama agreed and flashing neon lights and uniformed doormen greeted them as they pulled up. And Papa and Junior walked wide-eyed into the massive lobby. Neither could believe their eyes. When they stepped on a mat, the door opened automatically. And they had a lot of fun with that. 
And inside they, they stood like statues, staring at the first chandelier either of them had ever seen, hanging from a ceiling three stories high. And off to the left was an enormous waterfall rippling over inlaid stones and rocks. Then Junior called, Papa, look down there. And down below was an ice ice skating rink inside. They kept, though, hearing a clicking sound from behind them. And finally, they, they turned round and saw this amazing little room with doors that slid open from the centre. And people would walk up, push a button and wait. Lights would flicker along the doors and then click. The doors would slide open from the middle and some people would walk out of the little room and others would walk outside and turn around as click. The doors slid shut. Well, by now, father and son stood totally transfixed. And just at that moment, a wrinkled old lady shuffled up to the doors all by herself. She pushed the button and waited only a few seconds. Click. The door opened with a swish and she hobbled into the little room. No one else stepped in with her, so click. The door slid shut. Not more than 20 seconds later, the door opened again. And there stood a fabulously attractive blonde lady in her 20s. She stepped out, smiled at them, and just walked away. Immediately, Papa nudged his son vigorously. Junior, go get Mama. (laughs) Now, that is what we call an apparent mystery. Something that seems like a mystery to those involved, but with just a little bit of knowledge. The shroud of mystery is removed. What we're going to move on to look at now in Romans, though, well, this is a mystery. It is a true, genuine mystery. The mystery of God's call, God's election, God's choice of his people. Now, at the heart of this mystery stands a paradox with the definition of paradox that I came across, which I believe is is helpful and simple and accurate, being that a paradox is an apparent contradiction (laughs) that upon closer scrutiny can be revolved. Sorry, resolved. I'm revolving. Never mind anything else. But some, though, for example, that the great evangelical theologian, Jim Packer, he sees this issue as actually a particular type of paradox. That is an antinomy. And that is something which is not deliberately manufactured. It is forced upon us by the facts themselves. We do not invent it and we cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it, save by falsifying the very facts that led us to it. Now that, I believe, is what we find at the heart of an election, a particular kind of paradox, an antinomy revolving around the issue of how in this we fit together God's sovereignty and our human responsibility 
in salvation. Now, that does, I think, fit into the boundaries better of antinomy because there is a mystery here that will not be fully resolved this side of heaven. However, having said that, I do think that there are things here that we can understand better, that there are conclusions that we can come to. So I'm going to share with you now my view, my position with regard to this. Now, I am convinced, by the way, that this position, as I would be, has a firm biblical basis. But I want to say and admit that there are many fine Bible teachers who hold a different view, sometimes a very different view, to mine. And that, I believe, is because there is tension in the Bible. There are verses that clearly put the emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but there are also verses that seem to veer towards our human responsibility for our salvation. I believe that tension is deliberate, and it's a tension that's designed to be constructive rather than to confuse. For God's sovereignty is intended to make us ever aware that our salvation is secure, it is secure and safe in the Lord, in His power, His decision, His choice. Human responsibility, though, is emphasised to save us from becoming complacent. You know the kind of thing, God's saved me, God's chosen me, so I don't have to care about it anymore. I don't have to, to work at it at all. All I have to do is just lie back now and wait for heaven. So these two different dimensions of teaching are there in the Bible. They're both there, and without a proper theological basis, they can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. Let me make it clear then where I am coming from and what my basis is, and it's this. I will always put God before man. I will always put God's sovereignty and God's glory before man's freedom and man's responsibility. Now, you may disagree with some of the conclusions I've come to. I don't mind that. I don't mind other Christians having different opinions to mine as long as we agree on the, the fundamentals, the big questions of the faith, the nature of God, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. As long as we agree on those things, I believe we should allow one another a degree of liberty regarding the other areas of faith. Now, I'm willing to allow you that. I hope you'll be willing to allow me the same. Now, what I'm going to do now is simply, as I can, is walk through some of the key words and key concepts found in these verses, and then where these touch on other related issues, just try and deal with them and explain with them as well. So first then, foreknowledge, verse 29. For those God foreknew. So what does this mean? Now there are those who believe that what this means is that God who knows all, all things, that he foresees, he knows in advance who will believe. And on the basis of this, he then makes his choice. I want to say, I believe this cannot be true for a number of reasons. But, but the main one is this. And that is that if God chooses people 
on the basis of the fact that he knows that they are going to believe, then this makes the ground of salvation, of our faith, our choice, it makes it into something that's about our merit. It's something that we do. It makes salvation into a work of man. Whereas to the contrary, the Bible makes it so clear that our salvation fundamentally is about God's choice and God's mercy. That it is utterly and entirely an act of grace. That is of his undeserved love, unmerited love. But if foreknowledge isn't about this, if it isn't about his basing his choice on foreseeing who will believe, then what is it about? The key to understanding here, I believe, is really grasping the depth of meaning that there actually is in the Hebrew word that we translate know. Because you see, this isn't simply about knowing in the sense of having an intellectual understanding. No, this is about knowing in the sense of having a personal relationship with. A depth of knowledge that's based on a relationship of love and care. So then God's foreknowing of us is then about his decision to love us, to know us, to enter into relationship with him. A decision that happened, that was made before time began for reasons we will never fully understand, but on which his choice of us rests. Now, this understanding of foreknowledge in the New Testament, I believe, fits in well with what we find in the Old Testament. For example, in Moses' famous words in Deuteronomy 7-7 to the people of Israel, where he says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you, because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Our second key word concept is, is really a, a big one, and it is predestination. Predestination. The fundamental meaning of this is to, dis, to destine, decree, determine, appoint, or settle beforehand. To decide upon beforehand. What we're talking about then in this context is God's decision to choose a people for salvation. For you see, there is a decision involved when somebody becomes a Christian. There is a decision. But I want to say this. It is God's decision before it is our decision. Listen to what John Stott, what he says here. He says, this is not to deny that we decided for Christ and freely, but only to affirm that we did so only because he had first decided for us. He first decided for us. Now, there are a number of issues that, that touch on this that, that we'll come to later, particularly the whole question of how this relates to and ties in with human freedom. But let me make it clear that I do believe that this is something that is taught in the Bible. It's there. For example, Jesus words to his disciples in John 15, 16, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Paul's teaching, for example, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, for he chose us in him. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. But there are, are questions that surely need to be answered here. Like, why does God only choose some? Why does he not choose to save everybody? Now my answer to this, and, and I believe it is a biblical answer, is that God has to act. God has to choose to do as he does in order to be true to who he is. In order to be true to his character. For you see, God is holy. He's perfect in his goodness. God is just. God is absolutely righteous. A God who must always do what is right and true. But you see, we, we as, as men and women, as, as human beings, we by nature are sinners. Since Adam first chose to rebel against God, we, mankind, we have been by nature sinners. And if God is to be God, if he is to be true to himself, then that sin has to be dealt with. That sin has to be judged and punished. So actually, that question that we posed earlier isn't the real question. No, actually the real question is why does God save anybody? For we are all by nature rebels against God. And we do all choose to ignore him and his word. We all do go our own way rather than go his way. So God is quite within his rights to judge us. Quite within his rights to punish and to condemn us. So why then does he choose to save some? Only because of his love. It's only because of his mercy. It's this and this alone that drives God, that drives him to come to this sinful world in human flesh in Jesus Christ. It's this that leads him, that leads God's son, Jesus, to give his perfect sinless life on the cross as the sacrifice for all our sin. So then we have no right to complain at the fact God doesn't choose to save all. Rather, we should fall down in worship and in adoration that at such a cost, he should choose to save any. But we said that we'd deal with free will, with human freedom. So what about it then? Does this leave any room, what I've just said, for real human freedom? But what do we mean by freedom? What do we mean? A typical definition of freedom is freedom, free will, is the ability to make choices without any prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition. It sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds great. The, the problem is, though, 
that this kind of position of total neutrality from which we are able freely to make our decisions, our choices, just does not exist. Because the ground where our choices are made is in the mind. And the mind, the human mind, is open to all sorts of influences, both internal from within us and external from the world around us. These things all feed into our minds, affect our inclinations, our desires, our values and motives, and ultimately determine the choices we make. So we are all free because we make the choice. But it is a freedom within boundaries because these choices are influenced. Now that's a definition and understanding of freedom that I believe has got value across the board. But for the Christian, there is a, an acknowledged added dimension. The dimension of sin. For as we've just said, since Adam made that first choice to sin, to rebel against God, since he made the first choice, we mankind have been by nature sinners. So we by nature and by choice are sinners, leaving us under the influence of the powers of evil and with an inclination, with a bent towards sin. Jonathan Edwards, the wonderful American preacher and theologian who stood at the heart of the, the great awakening, he put our situation here like this. This is what he says. That the will is a natural ability given to us by God. We all have the natural faculties necessary to make choices. We have a mind and we have a will. We have the natural ability to choose what we desire. But the problem lies in what is going on within, in our hearts. The problem lies in what sin has and what sin is doing to us. That it leaves us without the moral ability to make the right choices. That is the consistently godly choices. R.C. Sproul, uh, uh, an American writer, he puts it like this. Edwards declared that man's problem with sin lies with his moral ability or lack thereof. Before a person can make a choice which is pleasing to God, he must first have a desire to please God. Before we can choose the good, we must first have a desire for the good. Before we can choose Christ, we must first have a desire for Christ. This fallen man in and of himself have a natural desire for Christ. Edwards answers this question with an emphatic no. And Augustine, the great early church theologian who no doubt influenced Edwards, he puts it in this way. This is what he says. Fallen man has a free will, but lacks liberty. Lacks liberty. And what he meant by that 
is that the sinner is still able to choose what they want. They can still act according to their desires. But because these desires are corrupt, they do not have the liberty of those set free for righteousness. But of course, what, what really matters is that all of this, what Paul says, what Edward says, what Augustine says, what really matters is that all of this is rooted in the teaching of Jesus. See John 6, 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So what does this tell us? It tells us no one can come. That's all inclusive. There are no exceptions. No one can. That's about ability, not permission. What Jesus is saying is, is not that no one is allowed to come to me, but he's saying that no one is able to come to me. No one can come to me unless, unless this tells us that something has to happen before something else can happen. And the meaning of Jesus' words here are clear. That no human being can come to him unless something happens that makes it possible for them to come. So what Jesus is saying here then is that the ability to come to him is a gift from God. The man does not have the ability in and of himself to come to Christ. That God must do something first. So what we are saying then is that before we can come to Christ, God has to give us the gift of faith, the gift of spiritual life. And that's what we're going to cover now in our fourth word, call. Call. And the passage that sets out most clearly what's really involved here is that famous passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, where Paul says there, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, glorifying the cravings of, gratifying the cravings of our spiritual nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's so clear, isn't it? So clear here, the contrast between death and life. Outside of Christ, we were dead in our sins, held fast in the clutches of the evil one, from which we would never have the power or the resources to break free. But then God, because of his great love for us, not because we in any way deserve it, he chooses to give us spiritual life. He chooses to regenerate us spiritually, and that enables us to put our faith in Christ. That enables us then to choose Christ. So salvation is from first to last a gift of God, a gift of God's grace. You see, we can be sitting in church and the cross is preached. There is an outward call for all to put their faith in Christ for salvation. But not all respond. Not all No, those who respond are those who hear God's effectual call in their hearts. Those who God in his grace chooses to bring to life and who then are made able by God to put their faith in Christ. This is the beginning of new life. It's not its sum total, but it's from this that everything else Flows from this. See what it says here in verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Get the order. Get a hold of that. God's effective call enables those who hear to believe. Those who believe are justified by faith. That is declared righteous in God's sight by virtue of Christ's death for us. And given in exchange for our unrighteousness, his righteousness. Given the righteous status of God, of Christ, in which we now stand before God. And those who are justified by faith are also glorified. And that is, we we know the glory of God, the life of God, and the Holy Spirit breaking into our life now with the fullness of that glory yet to come in the life in that world that is to come. But you may be pondering, I'm sure you are at the moment, that if what I've said is, is biblical, if it's right and if it's true, will this not then lead to complacency? regarding sharing the gospel. I mean, if God alone in his grace is the one who chooses who he brings to life, then do we really need to make an effort with regard to evangelism? Because won't God just do it anyway? But you see, God has chosen because he loves us to do us the honor of bringing us into partnership with him in those most precious work of salvation. The message of the gospel is his means. But we are his instruments that he chooses to use 
to take this gospel to the world. And if we don't do it, if we don't do it in effectively and in a relevant way, if we don't do what we are called to do, then people won't hear. Does this mean that some of the elect won't actually find salvation? Well, personally, I don't think so. But ultimately, I don't know. I don't know. But I tell you what, that saves me from complacency. And that, I believe, is the way that it should be. Rather, instead of that, what I've just shared with you about salvation being totally and utterly of God, that we are saved by his choice, that he is the one who gives spiritual life, rather than complacency, this gives me confidence. Confidence about my own spiritual security, that it rests not in my decision, but in God's, and confidence that there are people out there who will be saved. But maybe you're still sitting and you're thinking, but what about? It's what about? Because there are passages, maybe verses, that are, are bothering you. Things that you've read in the Bible that seem to contradict what I've said here about God choosing and choosing some for salvation. Well, what about probably the best known? Second Peter 3 verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, at the heart, this is what's at the heart of this, the word that's translated wanting here in the NIV is in other translations translated willing or, or wishing even in the ESV. Now, all are acceptable <coughs> translations but I think willing is best. That it gets across most accurately the real intention of Peter as he wrote this verse. God is not willing. God does not wish that anyone should perish. In the Bible, though, there are three different ways in which the will of God is spoken of. First, we have God's sovereign will. And nothing can resist the will of God in this sense. By this, he brings to pass what he has decreed. And there's no argument. Then we have, in addition, God's moral will. That is his commands and his laws. And it is God's will that we should do what he commands. But we know that we do disobey his will. For we sin. There are repercussions when we do, but we do. Thirdly, we have what is called God's will of disposition. And that is what is pleasing to God. That which he wills, that which he wishes and wants to see happen. And that when it does, that brings him great joy. Well, Let's then just apply these three definitions to that statement that God is not willing that anyone should perish. So if this refers to the sovereign will of God, then the conclusion here is obvious. If God sovereignly decrees that no one will perish, then no one will. 
But that doesn't fit in with what the Bible teaches elsewhere. But what about the moral will of God, his laws and his commands? Well then, this passage, what it would mean is that God does not allow anyone to perish. That he forbids people to sin and bring themselves under judgment. But you see, if people then went ahead and sinned and perished, then God would still have to judge them. It just doesn't work. Again, it makes no sense. The third alternative, that's God's will of disposition, what God is well disposed to, what pleases him. If we apply this here, then what this is saying is that God does not want anyone to perish in the sense that he takes no delight no pleasure in the fact that people are lost and heading towards hell. And of course, he doesn't. But you see, what we have to remember is that sin, the fact that we choose to sin, the fact that we are enslaved to sin, the fact that because of sin we are facing God's judgment, what we have to remember is that this is all about our choice. God didn't make this happen. We chose this. Man has chosen this. And because of this, judgment is all we deserve. Again, because God's holiness and justice demands that sin must be judged. And it's only because of love. It's only because of his love. It's only because of his grace in Christ extended to us and worthy as we are, it's only because of this that any can be saved. But maybe you're sitting there now and you're, you're wondering, where do I fit in to all of this? Where do I fit in? Is God chosen to give me life? Or am I lost? Am I beyond disgrace? I want to say to you, the very fact that you're asking that question indicates that God is speaking to you. But don't leave it at that. Respond to him. By faith, take hold of his salvation. Demonstrate your spiritual life by in faith taking hold of what God offers you. Life through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks for all your goodness and all your love. We want to thank you for the way that you save us, for the fact that you've called us to yourself in Jesus. We pray that today that you will give us that gift of faith that enables us to reach out and take hold of all that you've done for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name.